three knocks. It's the Holy Spirit asking if he can come in. <laughs> Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Good morning. It is such a pleasure to be here with you on Sunday, this Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, Easter. This is just a happy day. In the midst of a world that can lack for happiness, this is a happy day. If you have your Bibles, will you turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 20? We're going to be looking at chapters 20 and 21. Not that the chapter divisions are in the original text, nor these helpful headings that the Bible, at least mine, and I'm sure most of yours, give you helpful headings for each section. Helpfully, this is labeled the empty tomb which is good news, which is very good news. So early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they are staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples, when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. 
A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to the disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, and the sons of and the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, have you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the, on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As Simon Peter heard heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals, and there were fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come, have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time. Do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate what kind of death, to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, Follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple who Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, a rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? 
This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I don't suppose that even the whole world would have room for all the books that would be written. The word of the Lord. Much is occurring in this text. Notice I didn't say there's a lot going on here. Well, there's a lot in this picture that's being painted that that might be easy to miss. One of the most significant things to start with is John takes pains to say, early on the first day before it was light. By introducing his gospel, John starts his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. He has set this gospel out in, is in a cosmic framework. All the others will start with the birth of Jesus or just, hey, there was this guy. But John takes it back to the creation of the universe because he's talking about creation. And he is deliberately letting you know here that this is on, in the dark on the first day. This is to bring your mind back to Genesis, the beginning. On the first day when it was still dark, something is going on here. There is a new creation being spoken about here. And Mary went to the tomb, and she saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. And she was deeply troubled. Now, it doesn't say here that she looked in and saw the tomb was empty, but she could probably figure if the stone was away that something had happened so she went and she told the disciples it says Simon Peter and the other disciple the one that Jesus loved they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him well we know from accounts of the crucifixion that Joseph of Arimathea had asked for Jesus body and had placed it in a tomb that had never been used before that was his own tomb But it might have seemed to Mary like somebody had said, oh, we're not using that tomb, and had had removed Jesus' body. To her, she was probably thinking of a natural explanation, like Jesus was in the wrong tomb, that wasn't a place where they were putting bodies. At this time, the custom of a Jewish burial would be you would be laid in the tomb with all the spices and wrappings to keep there from being a bad smell, and the body would be allowed to decompose and then many years later people would come and collect the bones and they would put the bones in a little little ossuary box, bone box. That was the typical way to do the tomb. So she might have thought that he was placed in the wrong tomb and that somebody had come and but she didn't know where and she was distressed because she wanted to honor even though he had been executed she, she wanted to honor her Lord, the one she had followed and believed in. And so Peter and the other disciples start running for the tomb. And both they're running. You know, they're like, we got to see what's going on here. And uh, John, who might have been younger, got there first. And he looks in. But he doesn't go in. And then Peter, this is Peter. Peter just <laughs> runs into the tomb. This is Peter. Peter does. And um, Peter gets a bad rap. You know, we talked... Uh, a previous time about the, the did not three times denying Christ, but he is always he's always leading with his heart, leading 
leading action-wise, and so he just runs into the tomb. And when he does, we get this description. He sees the wrappings there, the strips of linen. And he sees the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head separately placed there. Well, just a little bit earlier in the Gospel of John, we have the account of the death of Lazarus and Jesus coming and calling Lazarus out of the tomb. And when Lazarus comes out of the tomb, you know, it talks about his grave clothes. And this is a deliberate echo in the text. We're supposed to think that these two these two events are linked, but they're also not the same. Lazarus, when he came out, he had to have those grave clothes removed from him. So we're, the picture is being the same, but these grave clothes are just lying there where they were. Nobody took Jesus out of them. Jesus came out of them. He didn't need somebody else. So it's telling us that this is like that other resurrection, but this one is different. And then it says, finally, John came into the tomb. He saw and believed. That's a really interesting statement. He saw and believed. Now, the reason that this statement can be here is because we kind of understand from the text that the disciple that Jesus loved was John, and it's John writing this account. So John has the inside track to say, yeah, he saw that and he believed. But it's not clear what he believed. It's clear from the next statement that they don't really quite understand what's going on. But he knows something happened. It's like he knows something really good happened. He doesn't know exactly what it is. He can't wrap his, but he knows. He knows there's something going on here. And it says they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had, had to rise from the dead. Jesus had been telling them the whole time he was with them, oh, by the way, I have to die. And they're like, no, surely not. You're the Messiah. We know what Messiah does. Messiah comes and he becomes a king and he beats up all the bad guys and kicks them out. And so you're not going to die. You're the Messiah. We know you're the Messiah. And Jesus is like, you don't understand that's, that's not what I'm here to do. I'm here to restore what God started. That's, I'm, I'm here to do more than just give Israel back a kingdom. You didn't do a great job with it the first time. I'm here to fulfill the plan of my father. But they still didn't understand. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now apparently Mary was here, had come back and was just sitting there crying and they just, okay, Mary's crying. We're going back to the other disciples. And she's still crying and looking into the tomb. <laughs> she sees two angels there. It's kind of significant that John and Peter didn't see the angels. Maybe because they were too caught up. Maybe they were getting busy. I don't know. But they didn't. But Mary did. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? Not that they didn't know, but they're pulling information out here. It's interesting whenever angels show up, uh, apparently here, two angels in white, to her looked like other people. Several times 
if you read the descriptions of, of various angels in, in the Bible, they're not always people you're going to think of as, as, you know, oh, there's a person. Usually the first thing angels have to say to you is, don't be scared. You know, I know I got six lion heads and a set of wings and stuff, but don't, don't be scared. Just, just look weird. I'm, I'm really not that scared. Um, but they say, well, she can mistake them for men. And they say, woman, why are you crying? And she tells them, they've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but did not realize it was him. Now, that's interesting, because she turns to face him and sees Jesus, and she thinks, oh, are you the gardener? Did, you know, was this the wrong place to put the body? If you've, if you've moved him, please tell me where, and I'll go, and I'll take care of the body. And he, you know, he asks her why he's crying, and, and she says that to him. And then he says to her, Mary. And it's interesting, because she's already turned to him, to see him and is speaking with him. But it says after he says Mary, she turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic. Rabbani, which means teacher. So there's something, when he says her name, it focuses her on him more fully. We get this, you know, Jesus had said much earlier, my sheep know my voice. When she hears him call her name, then she really turns towards him and realizes who it is. And she says, teacher. And then we get another really interesting statement. Don't hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to, to, the, to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Well, people have come up with different ways of explaining this like ah, the resurrection body was new and it wasn't appropriate to touch him but the language may not just talk to don't grab me it may mean okay don't don't hold on to me don't keep focusing on me as you've known me this is that was what happened this is something new and she's not she's not put off by this she doesn't seemed to react to this sadly. She runs away gladly after this. And Jesus says, go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. All the time up to this, Jesus has been preaching. He said, the father or my father. And now, you know, at the last supper, Jesus has said, I no longer call you my servants. I call you my brothers. Something has changed. He said, go tell my brothers I'm ascending to my father and their father. Something has changed by what, what Jesus has accomplished. And now a relationship that had been broken. You know, Israel has always been pictured as God's firstborn that he was going to do things through, but that relationship had been broken. You know, Jesus speaks to the children of Israel, and he said, if you were really the children of my father, you do the things that he does, but instead you show yourself being children of the devil. But there's something that's been restored now. And she goes off with, to the disciples, and there's every indication that she's glad. I've seen the Lord. And she told them everything he said to her, including this, my father and your father, and you're my brothers. What must that have had sounded like to them? Now, Earlier we had that great statement that John saw and believed. So he knows something happened that's really cool. Yet they're still hiding in a locked room. 
so it's like, yay, the Lord is back. Oop, there, there's mobs in the street. We better, we better hide, draw the shades, you know, peek out. What's the password? So they're in this locked room together because of fear of the Jewish leaders. And suddenly Jesus is there in the midst of them. And he says, peace be with you. And then he shows them his hands and his side. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw it, saw him. And then he tells them, just, just like the Father sent me into the world, now I'm sending you. It's like my mission is, is wrapping up. I've fulfilled what I came to do. And now your part of the story is to go on. And we're going to get a great picture of this uh, just one chapter later. He breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And both in Greek and Hebrew, breath and spirit are the same word. He's saying, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. There's a lot of, a lot of freight in that. There's a lot of responsibility to given, given to Jesus' disciples. There's this sense that if they don't bring the news, if they don't walk out what Christ has achieved, if they don't make it manifest, it won't be made manifest. So now it's, the charge is passing to them. And then we get the, the account of Thomas. Now Thomas, known as Didymus, one of the twelve, wasn't with, with, with them when, when Jesus came. So he gets, he's there the second time Jesus comes. And people make a lot out of this, you know, doubting Thomas. He's not really doubting any more than the rest of them. They were there. Jesus showed them his wounds and everything. And, you know, they probably told that and... Thomas is like, well, unless I see what you guys saw, I'm not going to believe. And, and notably, except for John, it doesn't talk about any of them believing it till they saw it too. So don't be too hard on Thomas here. But you, you do get this second physical manifestation. This isn't a ghost. This isn't an ethereal spirit body. Jesus wasn't resurrected in spirit. This is a body you can touch. And he believes. And this is the first time Thomas, doubting Thomas, is the first person to say, oh, my Lord and my God. He doesn't just say, oh, I recognize you're the Messiah. He says, I recognize you're God. And then Jesus talks about us. Because you've seen me and believed, you know, you believe because you saw me. Blessed are the people that haven't seen me, but they believe anyway. That's us. We have the testimony, and we believe because of the testimony. And then we get this lovely summary statement. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's a summary statement. That is winding up the gospel, which is interesting because we're going to get another chapter. So apparently John was... Wrapping the book up here. In, in Greek, there's this kind of, uh, and I, I totally owe this to N.T. Wright for pointing this out. Um, not that I spoke with him personally, but he has written several really good commentaries. Sadly, um, I, I love a lot of what N.T. Wright has written, and I had, uh, at River of Grace, I was friends with this guy named Trey. And... Um, who actually got his doctorate at, at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. And uh, 
one of his advisors was N.T. Wright. So we actually got to talk to him and tried not to be jealous about that. But, uh, but he points out here that when it gets the statement that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that's the English translation is actually backwards. It's that you may believe that the Messiah is Jesus. In other words, you've had this idea of a Messiah. And we talked about, you know, them always wanting that revolutionary leader. And in fact, when Pilate gives them the choice of, of getting Jesus released to them, instead they choose this violent revolutionary leader who had killed people in an insurrection because that's what they wanted. Well, John is saying, I've written this so that you'll understand that the Messiah that you were hoping for is this guy. He's different, different than what you were expecting. And then he winds it up. That is a nice ending for the book. But we get this additional chapter, which is kind of odd. And there's maybe slightly different authorship of this last chapter. Now, one of the things you have to understand is that of the Gospels, the last one is written, written is, the, is John, the Gospel of John. And best historical evidence indicates John outlived the other disciples by a ton. We know Peter was put to death in Rome. We have some anecdotal evidence and traditions of, of the other disciples and how they came to the end. Probably the best historical evidence we have is for Thomas. Doubting Thomas, um, as best we can tell, uh, he went to India and founded a church in India. And in fact, by the time, when you get to the uh, 14th or 15th century and uh, Portuguese and Spanish explorers get there, they, they find this Christian church there. And the Christians there call themselves Thomas Christians. And they tell them, hey, we, yeah, our church was started by this guy Thomas who came and told us about Jesus. Um, so there's, there's pretty good, uh, pretty good uh, evidence that he actually did make that. And in fact, uh, in the early history of the church in the third century, the 200s, uh, one of the big centers of the church at that time, although the church was still persecuted and underground, but there was a big school in Alexandria in Egypt that was training new generations of leaders. It was the catechetical school of Alexandria. And one of the leaders of that school, uh, when he was stepping down, he passed leadership over to the, of the school to a, a man named Origen, who, who wrote some fantastic stuff, uh, early stuff talking about Jesus, also some really weird stuff, but, but some good stuff too. But when he passed it to Origen, he said it was so he could go to India to preach the gospel there. So the church at that time already knew about this Eastern thing. So that's Thomas. Anyway, but so all those disciples had passed away and John was still alive. And because John was still alive, and he was alive way after everybody, um, people began to talk about John. And in part, one of the reasons we get this next chapter is for John to kind of set the record straight. Now, in fact, John lived so much past um, the other disciples that we, two of the earliest figures we know of in the church post-apostles, uh, post the generation we call the Apostolic Fathers, two of the people writing then are actually going to have been disciples of John's. So we have this historical continuity. Um, I, I have a friend uh, 
who was formerly a, a uh, church planter and a pastor who has become an atheist and um, denies the faith, and he's, he's pretty vocal in it, and he, uh, he's, he's actually still a great guy, but he'll talk about, well, you know, there's no real historical proof for any of the disciples except Peter and Paul, and I would beg to differ. No, we actually have two guys that studied with John that wrote letters about it, and um, one of them is uh, Polycarp, and uh, the other one escapes me, which shouldn't because he wrote a ton of letters on his way to Rome to be martyred. Um, but anyway, so John lived a lot longer. And then we get this, this last chapter added on here. And it's, we find the disciples again, and they're going back to fishing. Now, they've been commissioned by Jesus. They've been given a new, a new mission, but they're kind of spinning their wheels. They're back to fishing. Well, this is what we were doing uh, before we met this guy. And uh, so let's, we know how to do this. Let's go back and do that. And maybe their families were relieved. It's like, okay, yeah, you guys went off on, you know, following the Grateful Dead on tour for three years, but you're back. Um, you know, you can go back to working and fishing now. That, okay, that may have been a generational reference. I might have missed some people out with that one. But uh, so they're going back to what they're doing. And one morning, Jesus is standing on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. There's something about his resurrection body. It's neat, because even though there is continuity, even though they can recognize it's him, recognize it's a physical body, it's not always apparent it's him. Now, some of that might just be the shock of the guy you saw being crucified. Um, you're just not there. But um, he says, friends, haven't you any fish? Nope. Then we'll throw your net out the other side. And they do, and they get this miraculous catch. Now, this echoes the first calling of the disciples when they were fishing and had fished all night and not caught anything, and Jesus told them to let down their nets, and they had so many fish that the boats were sinking. Uh, they had to get another boat and bring them ashore. So this is echoing that first call. It's a little different, though. That time, there were so many fish, the ships were sinking. This time, even though there's so many fish, the net's not breaking, something's changed. And they say, it's the Lord. And what happens when they say it's the Lord? Peter. Peter happens. If you're waiting for something impetuous to happen and want to know who's going to do it, bet on Peter. Or maybe Thomas. Yeah, let's go with him so we can die too. Um, but Peter, he wraps his cloak around him and he jumps into the water. This is the second time Peter has gotten out of a boat in the middle of a lake to go see the Lord. Um, so he's consistent that way. And he just... He's so happy. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals with fish on it and some bread. Okay, Jesus is making breakfast. And he says to them, hey, do, do you have any fish? Go grab the net and bring some fish too. Jesus doesn't need their fish. Jesus already has fish and bread there. But Jesus invites them to bring their harvest that he's led them to and add it to his. He's telling them, look, you're going to work with me in this endeavor. And you bring what you bring. And even though I gave that to you, you bring it with you to me. And they have this, this breakfast together. When they finished, you have this dialogue between Peter and Jesus. And if you know the story of the crucifixion, you know that Peter, when Jesus was taken captive and brought to Caiaphas' house, Peter followed and he went in. He was still trying to figure out what was going on. 
and he's asked three times if he's one of Jesus' disciples. And three times he denies it incredibly vehemently the last time. You know, he had been the one that said, if everybody else falls away from you, I won't. He was the one that took out his sword and attacked a mob. But when it comes down to it, yeah, he, he denies it three times. So we get this discussion between Jesus and Peter. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? It's a little ambiguous here, but it doesn't seem like Jesus is saying, do you love me more than the other disciples love me? He's saying, look, do, do you love me more than all this stuff around you? And in Greek, there's two different words being used here. Jesus is saying, Simon, son of Peter, do, do you love me, agape? Do you love me selflessly and with everything? And Peter says, Lord, you know I love you like a brother. And Jesus says, feed my lambs. Simon, son of John, do you love me again? Do you have that selfless, giving love for me? And again, Peter answers, Lord, you know I love you like a brother. And finally, Jesus changes his language and he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me like a brother? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. He's making Peter recognize that he does love him and he's giving him a charge. He's not disqualifying him for the kingdom. He could have. Remember, we have that statement from Jesus in the early days when he's calling disciples that he who puts his hand to the plow and looks back isn't worthy of the kingdom. He could have thrown that in Peter's face. But he doesn't. He says, okay, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Take care. You're going to be a shepherd. That is the charge to the disciples. You're going to be a shepherd. And then he gives them this foretaste of, of what's coming. And he says... You know, when you're young, you did what you wanted, but there's going to come a time in your old age where someone else is going to take you somewhere you don't want to go. And we know that Peter was crucified in Rome for his witness of Christ, and he did not consider himself to be worthy, according to tradition, to be crucified like Christ was, so he actually asked to be crucified upside down. And it says that he told him this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then Peter turns around and he sees the disciple who Jesus loved following them and they explain that that's the disciple that asked who was going to betray him, who was leaning on Jesus' breast, which we know is John. And he says, what about that guy? And Jesus said, if, if I want him to stay alive until I return, what, what's that to you? A couple of things here. This is the first time Jesus talks about he's going to return. In this gospel, it kind of comes back to that. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. You're coming back? Cool. And he said, because of this, the rumor spread among the, the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would die. Only he said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? This is the disciple who testifies these things and who wrote them down. We know his testimony is true. So you get this statement here that seems to be this is a scribe wrapping the whole thing up and he goes look this disciple here is the one that told us all these things that put him down and we know his his testimony is true 
And it also points up, Jesus calls each of us to our own walk. We don't have to fulfill other people's callings. We have to fulfill our calling. One of the great historical trends in the church that actually accelerates in the 20th and 21st centuries, now 21st centuries, now that we're modern people, um, is people try and find effective models. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to be effective in ministry for Christ, but too often it takes the form of, oh, that's what that guy did. We need to do what that guy did. Or this is what the previous generation did. We need to do what the previous generation did. But what we have to do is be faithful to search out what God is calling each and every one of us to do and be faithful to our own calling. The picture is great that we get. It talks about us being built together as living stones, not as bricks. God, people love bricks. Every brick's the same. You just stack them wherever you want. But stones are odd. They have weird patches of moss on them, and they're dinged in different places, and you got to stack them just right. So each stone has its own place to go. Don't try and be another stone. Well, back to the empty tomb, because this is the seal on everything. I talked about, I, I always talk about when I was uh, pre-Christian, living back in Texas, there used to be these roving gangs of witness people that would just, you know, you'd be walking down campus and they'd pop out the bushes. Did you know you're going to hell? If you don't accept Christ, you're going to hell. Which is horrible, horrible evangelistic strategy. And it, it also reduces the gospel. It makes the gospel, you were going to hell, now you're going to heaven which it's not. There's much more going on. Paul says that God was in Christ reconciling all things to himself. He is not just concerned with getting souls into heaven. He is concerned with redeeming his creation. When he made creation back in Genesis and finished, he said it was good. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, subpar. It was good. When we have this early in the morning of the first day in the garden, this is new creation. This is New creation and creation being made new. God is redeeming the whole project. There's more going on here than getting souls into heaven. It's God restoring all things. Do you remember, how many of you like remember when you were a little kid? Did you ever get up before the rest of your family on a, like a really nice summer day? Go outside or on Christmas. Everybody, when they're Christmas, you wake up before your parents. And you go outside and you just can't wait for everybody else to get up and just be part of this magnificent thing that's going on. There are moments like that all through creation. Those are good moments. They point us forward to this new creation. There is going to come a renewed day where we're all just going to be like, this is the best morning ever. Because all the things we see now are just echoes of that. I said, why, I, you know beautiful song talking about seeing Jesus face to face. Paul gives us that great statement that to be absent from the flesh is to be present with Christ. That's wonderful, but that's only a stop. God was, is redeeming all of creation and he intends for there to be a time when heaven and earth are together. When there's a renewed creation that we can dwell in fully. If it were just a matter of we are sinners and God's wrath had to be satisfied Good Friday would have been enough. But Good Friday is followed by Sunday morning. Because we're, we're not just saved from the consequences of the fall. We're restored to the original relationship of fellowship in the creation that God wanted. 
So we thank God for Good Friday because Good Friday breaks the, tears the veil that separated us from God. But the greatest holiday in the Christian calendar is Easter morning because life has begun again, has been renewed. And this is life that swallows up death. This is not another life headed for another death. This is life that is so full of life it can't be contained by death.